Air War Project Shortcuts Air Land Battle and Air Force View The latter stages of the Cold War saw the U.S. Air Force and Army working closely together on an innovative and far-reaching doctrine to fight a ground war in Central Europe. The doctrine, known by the catchy moniker Air Land Battle, introduced new ways of thinking about warfare and gave birth to a number of innovative weapon systems that would impact for decades the way the United States military waged war. How did this unlikely battle plan come into being? The air-land battle, a concept resulting from the general reorientation of America's strategic interests away from the conflict in Vietnam to the European theater and the Cold War proper, epitomized the Army's response to the crisis of the Warsaw Pact's rapidly strengthening conventional forces capability in Europe. With its conceptual elements, air-land battle spearheaded the American defense establishment's post-Vietnam intellectual, spiritual, and material rejuvenation, and remodeled the early 1980s Army with a subtlety and finesse heretofore absent in U.S. military thought. The doctrine was noteworthy not only for the military solutions it offered, but also the close inter-service cooperation it engendered between the Air Force and the Army. The two services had not always seen eye-to-eye -eye on the proper employment of air power in warfare. But by the mid-1970s, encouraged by the cooperation established during the Vietnam War and motivated by the lean defense budgets of the Carter years, the Air Force and Army turned to cooperation to address the challenge presented by the Warsaw Pact in Europe. Airland battle's genesis can be traced to the immediate preceding Army doctrine promulgated in Field Manual FM 100-5, known as Active Defense. The doctrine, published in 1976, was innovative but garnered much criticism for its passivity in the face of overwhelming Warsaw Pact conventional superiority. The Soviets, having attained and then surpassed strategic nuclear parity with the West, simultaneously forged ahead with the conventional forces modernization program intended to achieve a rapid conventional victory in Europe. The scale of the buildup was astounding. By the early 1980s, Warsaw Pact armored forces wielded a localized 5 to 1 advantage in tanks against selected elements of NATO. Active defense was an attritional defensive strategy in line with the unique political stipulations of NATO and West Germany, but that made it a less than effective fighting doctrine under which it became rapidly clear that NATO forces would in fact be the first to be attrited. The appointment of legendary general Don A. Starry to head the Army's Training and Doctrine Command, TRADOC, in 1977 spurred on a rewrite of FM 100-5 that would eventually lead to the Airland Battle Doctrine. Starry reasoned that the lethality of fires on the modern battlefield necessitated not static, defensively oriented solutions, but aggressive maneuver and dispersion. Acknowledging Soviet numerical superiority, the doctrine proposed a way of fighting, outnumbered and winning. To do so, the Army would have to employ maneuver warfare on an unprecedented scale to exploit Soviet vulnerabilities in bringing their forces to bear against NATO. Because of P-51 
peculiarities in European geography, Soviet armed forces were channeled along specific routes and arranged in an echelonal structure that stretched out several hundred kilometers rearward from the point of the main thrust. Starry was determined that those Soviet second echelons not be allowed to maneuver unfettered prior to their arrival at the point of battle. Active defense had hoped to defeat each echelon in succession as it arrived on the battlefield. But Airland Battle instead proposed to attack all echelons simultaneously, instilling a type of tempo and ferocity to the battle that would disorient and defeat a numerically superior opponent. This was and is the essence of maneuver warfare. At minimum, if the follow-on echelons could be disrupted and prevented from reinforcing their frontline counterparts even temporarily, the massive Warsaw Pact forces might be defeated piecemeal at the point of the close battle. But for the entire scheme to work, the army needed a new range of capabilities to both see deep and to strike deep because the ground commander didn't possess the organic resources to either find or to fire at the second echelon. It was clear, then, right from the beginning, that the deep battle precepts of airland battle depended on a significant proviso, air force support for the army's battle scheme. That the air force did cooperate, and in fact so enthusiastically that for the next decade and a half almost all air force requirements were subjugated to the needs of fighting a land battle in Europe, can be explained by a confluence of events. The air force, after all, had never really had a great natural relationship with the army a state of being that persists and is expressed in various ways even today. So this period was unique in Air Force history and was really initiated during the war in Vietnam, where soldier and airmen had to work in close quarters and junior officers were inculcated in the normalcy of close cooperation with their army brethren. Furthermore, the decreasing importance of strategic nuclear bombers and their role in the PSYOP single integrated operations plan, and the resulting decline in the prestige of strategic air command opened the door for the first time in decades to other avenues of air power employment. The fighter pilots, who increasingly assumed higher positions in the Air Force command structure, were not averse to working with the Army, particularly as the aforementioned decade in Vietnam had broken down many of the barriers to close cooperation. The post-Vietnam refocusing on the European theater and the NATO mission made airmen aware that the pooling of resources in the lean budgetary environment of the mid-1970s would help them to justify an ambitious rebuilding program that included aircraft like the F-15E and the F-117 and systems like AMRAAM and Lantern. Finally, the doctrinal pull effect of airland battle was too great to resist to the new generation of airmen who came primarily from fighter backgrounds and were unencumbered by decades of strategic theology at SAC. On the contrary, fighter pilots, by the power of their founding document and the culture that they had built around it, quite readily cooperated with the Army on land-centric tactical concepts. The Army was good to them in a way that SAC never was. The relationship that developed between the two services flourished beyond all expectations, propelled as it was by a flurry of goodwill, memoranda, and high-level political approbation.
By the time of the Doctrine's publication in 1982, the Army felt comfortable enough in the relationship to christen the document Air Land Battle, seemingly giving equal emphasis to its air and ground components. Airmen felt compelled to reciprocate the sentiment, so much so that a chief of the Tactical Air Command stated unequivocally, everything that tactical air does directly supports the air-land battle, while another suggested that his pilots would crash their aircraft into enemy tanks if that was what it took to support the Army. The cooperation peaked in the mid-1980s with various high-level initiatives, such as the 31 Initiatives Agreement and the issuance of the 1986 edition of FM-100-5, continuing under the name of Airland Battle. Airland Battle precepts and scenarios permeated all aspects of Air Force planning in almost all theaters, from Europe to the Middle East to Asia. Indeed, the canned contingency plan in place when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990 was a thoroughly Airland Battle-focused plan. But no matter the avowed support and flowery rhetoric, the goodwill between the services was not to last. Deep philosophical and cultural differences between the Air Force and Army about the nature of warfare and their respective places within it ultimately proved irreconcilable. The Air Force had been founded on strategic air power, and the fighter pilots who had assumed control of their Air Force increasingly came to understand that a subordinate role to the Army would ultimately not prove beneficial to their service in the long term. The consequences that flowed from this realization converged at the point of the airland battle. The Air Force's unwillingness to agree to key airland battle assumptions, particularly around the area of control of air assets, ultimately led to the dissolution of the promising but tenuous bonds that had served to hold the services together. Within a few short years of its mid-1980s zenith, the Air Force-Army relationship had ended. Airmen rejected airland battle not because it didn't make sense as a military doctrine, but rather because it didn't make good sense from an organizational and cultural perspective for them to continue their tactically focused relationship with the Army. Support of the battlefield remained an important task as subset of air power, but it was not the essence of the Air Force, nor could it constitute a viable organizing principle of an independent Air Force within the American national context. The movement was all the more spurred on by geopolitical changes, most notably the ending of the Cold War, and further received a powerful boost in the wake of the 1991 Persian Gulf War, which saw the first application of the Air Force's core doctrine since World War II. The Gulf War showcased the state-of-the-art in aviation technology and reacquainted airmen with their long-standing but forgotten convictions about the strategic employment of air power. Soon after its conclusion, the airland battle as a joint doctrine was dead. <laughs>